0: No Welcome to this episode of No Challenges Remaining, episode 168. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again, first time since the US Open, by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen, live from Singapore. Hi, Courtney. Hello. It turns out Skype. Not so great in
1: China. So yes, this is this is the first time that I've been able to get on the line and to find a reasonable connection and all that. So hopefully you can hear me loud and clear.
0: And you have had like computer issues on top of that. Also. Oh
1: my God. It has been a thing. <laughs> so yes, I, I arrived in Wuhan for the Wuhan Open, the Dongfeng Motor Wuhan Open. Uh, everything mm-hmm. was great. Everything was fine. About the second or third night I was there. My MacBook Air completely died, wouldn't turn on. That was problematic as I was in Wuhan, China. Luckily, the iPad- on an Apple store on every corner in Wuhan? Interestingly, I, I mean, they sell apples. Do I know whether or not they are Apple products? I don't know, but they're definitely yeah. manufactured there. <laughs> so, you know, shouldn't have to pay like a lot of taxes. But anyway, so yeah. so And I have like a backup MacBook at home. So I didn't want to mm-hmm. like spend money to buy a new laptop out of my own pocket. Um, cause I knew I had backup, backup one once I got home. So yeah, so I had an iPad and I was basically filing stories from my iPad, but because I only had an iPad, I also could not edit and upload audio or video or anything. So yeah, so there were no podcasts, no insider podcasts while I was in China. There was no NCR podcast while I was in China. It was, it was a thing and it was very, very frustrating and I would not recommend to anyone to try and cover a tournament, like fully cover a tournament. One thing if – all you have to do is like file stories and just all you need is like text to write something and send it.
0: But if you Which actually, is what most people – which is all most people do, but we are just such multimedia wizards.
1: Exactly. You know? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So frustrating. Um, so, yeah. So that was just really, really difficult and very frustrating. So luckily once I got to Beijing, I was able to get a work laptop – that was brought over to me by Kate Goff, who is a wonderful WT comms uh, person who uh, was able to lug a second laptop over to me. But now I'm on a Very PC nice, and I don't know how to use it. So, <laughs> yeah. But at least I was least able like, to, like, send out? video. I mean, I had, like, press conference video stuff, weirdly, that worked while I was in Beijing, but audio was still a bit of an issue.
0: And you can do, like, cool, you know... Um pc things like play spider solitaire and stuff so you have that going for you i have no idea what the hell you're talking about anyhow let's just move on to w you were in wt asia basically for two weeks damn Uh, straight of those how how was it this is your third year in a row i guess doing wuhan and china open um how just sort of an update on those tournaments just how how are things is uh, wuhan obviously is a still an odd case because it's sort of a I feel like from the outside it's like it's just a what might have been tournament given that it was built around Lina and then she peaced out right before it started um but is it is is the tennis seeming to to gain roots there does it still feel like it's still a, a work in progress how, how is the feeling on, on the grounds in Wuhan in particular I guess but also uh what you see in Beijing
1: well I think that tennis in China is always going to be a work in progress simply because it is a new sport here I mean not just to play but also to watch and you know i think that that you know it's a very difficult thing to explain in 140 characters on twitter um right. you know to really get into the nuance of it i think i would direct people to some of the podcast episodes of the last you know last year uh with Pete Chorba who who worked at, at the China Open as well as uh when i interviewed a bunch of um uh, tennis journalists in China to discuss mm-hmm. the growth of the sport there. So, you know, I mean, the China Open, Shanghai, those are the, the longer standing tournaments in China. They have better crowds because obviously big cities, very cosmopolitan cities, but also they've just had a head start. They've had about a 10-year head start on tournaments like a Wuhan or a Tianjin, um, you know, a Shenzhen Chengdu, uh, which the men had a tournament there. So, yeah, so so it's different. You know, this is, the newer tournaments are, are very um, vocal about. You know, you can't compare us to them. They they've been around longer, and we're only talking like you know ten years. You know, so these are new tournaments and new markets. Um, with Wuhan, I think that one thing that they were quite affected with this year in terms of attendance was with rain. It was a very rainy hmm. tournament
0: oh,
1: yeah. uh, in Wuhan this year. So that was a bit you know, frustrating, I think, on that end. I think one thing also that people do need to understand culturally about China, this is a working country. People work. <laughs> they work incredibly hard. Leisure time and leisure activities are still a thing that they're kind of, in a lot of ways, wrapping their head around. I mean, leisure activity, I think, in not just China, but in a lot of Asia, is usually revolving around family or food you know, that, that's, that's kind of our mentality as an Asian American, I can say this, like that is leisure is like going to dinner is like, you know, meeting up with friends, meeting up with family, the idea Mm -hmm. of spending money to like, you know, good money to have an experience, not a tangible thing, but an experience, I think is still a bit of a new thing, particularly in China and a few other Asian countries. So, you know, if you have money, There's no shortage of money in China. (laughs) That I can definitely tell you. But right now where especially young people who you would think would be people who might be interested in tennis, um, where their minds are at is I would rather buy a Louis Vuitton bag than buy a $40 ticket to a tennis tournament.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Are 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 you – I guess with, with that, I think those are things, you like you said, you've talked about, I think, with Pete. And by the way, shout out to Pete, who was very nice to me when I was in Beijing briefly last week. Hi, Pete. Um, is, there, uh, is, there, is there optimism that this will change or is it just sort of always going to be the ch- cultural Oh, no.
1: That, I think that's def- there's definite optimism because, again, you look at Shanghai and you look at Beijing. Like yeah. they get crowds. This year in particular as well with the the China swing – um, there's the, the China National Holiday, just like kind of a week-long holiday. And where that holiday kind of lands will absolutely impact attendance figures at these tournaments. So the, the holiday has at times kind of bridged between, I think in the years past, I could be wrong in this, has bridged between Wuhan and Beijing. This year, it fell almost entirely during Beijing's tournament So Beijing, like, the the crowds were great. Like, (laughs) the crowds were, like, way better, at least in my recollection, this year than they were, like, last year, Um, Mm -hmm. which is kind of surprising because it was kind of rainy at times. But um, so, you know, that has a lot to do with it. And, again, that goes towards what my original point was, was, like, this is a working country. So when people criticize – and this is something that happens in Europe as well and in the States when you have a tennis tournament and, you know, unlike sports like NFL – or college football from an American standpoint, and a little bit of soccer, although obviously there are soccer games during the week. But tennis goes, like, Monday through Friday, right? Like, during no. work or work hours. So I yeah. always get, like, really weirded out when people get really pissed off that, like, it's not a full crowd at 2 o'clock on a Tuesday. And I'm like, what the heck do you expect? It's 2 o'clock on a Tuesday. People got to work.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you see that even, at like, in, in Grand Slams at the U.S. Open yeah. like like where there's, like, a day session quarterfinal. Uh, men's and women's usually that like, those are not usually the fullest matches at all, and nor should they be because it's like Wednesday in the middle of the week. And people gotta work, yeah, you know, and and it's in it, for a Grand Slam, so I I, I get that. And that's the same thing on Melbourne, I think too, has a bit right. of that, yeah, as well for those certain day session matches. Yeah, um, yeah so, so, so I mean, so there is there is yeah.
1: optimism. There is like especially okay. when you look at a tournament like Wuhan, the facilities are incredible. The players are treated very very well. They're they're definitely taken care of as. More infrastructure and more experience, I think, comes to, to Wuhan in terms of, you know, again, you're, you're talking about a tournament that's starting from scratch three years ago. Like, you know, the locals there, they've never seen a media center, you know, at tennis. You know, they, they don't understand, you know, for example, like I remember the first year, there were constantly like local reporters who were reporting on the tennis there were like, when is this interview happening? You need to tell me when this, when is Caroline Wozniacki coming into press? Give me a time. And now, those of us who have been tennis reporters, are like, well, you're not going to get a time until she's done playing, right? Like, just chill out because yeah. you, you, you know, depends on how long the match is. It took it, it. They didn't necessarily understand that initially. So again, a lot of it's growing, but it's growing exponentially in terms of the knowledge. I mean, this year, especially with the the media area and the player area and the player services, hotel, all these sorts of things, vastly improved over last year. Last year was vastly improved over the year before. So, you know, if I were to come back to Wuhan and or, you know, or Beijing or Shanghai when I used to cover Shanghai and notice, like, no change, that would worry me. Yeah. But to the extent that, like, everything is continuing, like, even I was talking about uh, in, even in Beijing, you know, one of the big issues when you cover a tournament in China is internet. Um Just getting, I mean, for those of us who use Gmail, guess what? (laughs) It takes a little bit of effort to access your email. (laughs) And if you cannot get onto the things that you need in order to access your Gmail and Twitter and YouTube and all the things that we use and Google, um, working is very difficult outside of that as well, there's also just bandwidth issues sometimes. And, you know, that has always been a struggle. You would get to a tournament and you wouldn't really know what the bandwidth was going to be, what the Wi-Fi situation was going to be. You know, could you do things that you would normally do stateside or in Europe, um, in China? This year in Beijing, I, I was like, it's the best Wi-Fi I've ever experienced at a tournament. Like, it was so fast to the point where I kept apologizing to, like, the the tournament people because I was staying really late. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I need to, like, upload all these things, and I have to do it here. I can't go back to the hotel to do it. So it was a bit frustrating. But I heard that the reason why is because Beijing wants to include all those LED boards, you know, around the the uh, the, 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 the stadium. Kind of like what they do at the World Tour Finals um and in order to do that you need an incredible amount of bandwidth um and stuff so they basically completely like revamped their entire infrastructure um and so yeah so there it is so it's not like these things aren't possible it's just that like you just they just have to be convinced that like they actually need it <laughs> you know
0: yeah to make and the they investment. just don't have the and they don't have the head start of exactly. you know uh, you know, Wimbledon being what, like, 140 years old now, or something. Right. That's why I uh, I, I, blan- are, I, I yeah. admit
1: I bl- I blanch a little bit when people kind of apply Western standards to to to, to Eastern tournaments because it, it's two different worlds, and we can sit there and and people and I've seen the you know people and I've had these discussions with people on on Twitter who want to see it through that lens that are, that the West is the standard and everybody should should be a Western standard, which I understand. But uh, I think that so much about growing the sport and the potential in Asia in particular is going to these communities and understanding where they're at. And then you kind of like meet in the middle a little bit. But I was speaking to to Pete Chorba, who worked for the China Open and uh, no longer is there, but but has worked there and has been in China and lived in China for uh, quite a bit now. And he was kind of saying, you know, one of the things that is very different about Chinese tournaments, particularly the China Open, in his experience as compared to, for example, maybe Western tournaments in the States or in Europe, is that right now where people are at with respect to wanting to go to a tennis tournament, you have to provide for them the full entertainment experience. That they are not going to a tennis tournament right now just to watch tennis. So there has to be things going on around the grounds to really engage with fans and, you know, to get them to like, hey, this is a family day. Kind of like, you know, going to the county fair, you know, kind of sort of thing. Like you come, there's a lot of different things going on. There's good food here. There's, um, you know, all these little activities, a lot of autograph sessions, a lot of things like that, photos with players. They get really excited about that. And then you kind of like get them to come in and sit. And watch a match from front to front from beginning to end, you know. And so it's a different mindset. And so it, these tournaments would fail, I think, if we if the tours, both ATP and WTA or ITF or anybody else who is running a tournament here, came to them and said, "You need to be like the Italian Open. That's the standard that you need to do." You know, which the Italian Open doesn't have anything else going on around the grounds. It's just the tennis. You go there to watch tennis. There's good food. But other than that, <laughs> um, and so with with the with the China Open, with the Wuhan Open, with Shanghai, you know, I think that there is this push to to kind of do that, because that's what 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 the Chinese people find to be uh, valuable. And so you have to deliver the value to the fans. And that might be a different value proposition than what you would to deliver in the States or in Europe.
0: Yeah, and I think I, that's what Pete was telling me, too, just from a lot of times the optics on TV at all three Chinese tournaments, all the, big, the three big ones, Wuhan, Beijing, and Shanghai, can be rough. I mean, there can look, you can look at this. I remember there was a match with, like, Lucas Pui, I think, in Shanghai. Or it was Beijing. I forget which one. I just remember a cap. And it was a photo of him, uh, a screen crap of him during the match from the World Feed, and it was, like, a sea of empty seats behind him. And it doesn't mean there's nobody on the ground. It's just, like, there's people, you know, buzzing and going to doubles matches and stuff, and just a different... The, the stadium optics can be bad but it's uh yeah it doesn't mean the event is as in dire straits like it might look if you were just thinking that was the be all end all right i mean there was were... tournament success is how it looks on tv i know and
1: i know in beijing there were huge lines i mean dangerously huge lines for rafa nadal doubles on the outer courts
0: um, yeah i heard there was like a there was like a like a yeah like not like a near i don't say near riot but like he was put on like whatever the third court was and there was some like huge you know disgrumblings grumblings that he the people couldn't get in
1: right yeah no definitely and 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 same as i, I think the bryans played out in an outer court and like like chinese people love doubles like they they like really really dig it so yeah like there was a lot going on in the outer courts but yes i mean lotus court or i'm sorry diamond court which is the main court um at the China Open is an incredibly large court, and was it difficult- can those courts be difficult to fill absolutely just like when you go to Indian wells during the first week, there's nobody out on on stadium court that, yeah. but it's a sold out ground session right like I mean you've been there like there's tons of people on the grounds, and I'm not saying that it's like apples to apples, but it's something to recognize for a lot of people who are watching from home that. What you see is not exactly what's going on at the tournament as a whole.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about some of the encore stuff that happened. WT Asia. Um, first, just briefly mentioned Tokyo, which happened since our last show. It feels like a while ago now. Uh, with Naomi Osaka making the final, which was cool. Um, and really, sort of vow- and bouncing back real nice from her uh, from her U.S. Open five one uh, collapse, or, you know lost against Madison Keys. She did well there, uh, so that bumps her up nicely. And Wozniacki won that tournament, so she's continuing. US up in form 2 and is like nearly top twenty again. So that was that she was is top twenty. Big. She is top twenty now. Yeah, okay. she
1: won Hong Kong uh, last week. Right. So she won,
0: I was going to say yeah, she won another title too. Got yeah. to Top twenty though. Okay. Yeah. So she's she up to I think
1: uh, maybe seventeen. So she's oh, wow. playing this week in in Luxembourg, and then she's qualified obviously for Zhuhai, which is a big rack of points. So if she were to finish this season pretty well, I think she'd be kind of potentially on the verge like you know maybe two or three spots around maybe 12 or 13 outside of the top 10 which would be freaking amazing considering what she was like 76 4? some sort of yeah even 70, 74 74, 74 at yeah, the, the US Open which is i mean so props to, props to Woz, man
0: yeah yeah weirdly i'm just looking at my app the weirdly the WTA rankings have not updated on the app weird i don't know why it still says rankings as of 10 10 oh, last wow. week. So, anyway i know you're not i know you're not tech support for the app but i just thought that was odd. funny how that um works. yeah uh so let's see yeah the so that was it uh wuhan was wuhan-bulin again for petra kvitova she won her second title there it didn't seem quite as lightning fast as it did in 2014 but she still won beat kerber um and then in beijing it was radvanska winning another title there um, I guess let's get to Kerber briefly, before, and then we'll get to Serena after, but Kerber uh, seems to be having some injury issues, I guess, or just some fatigue issues uh, in these three weeks, and hasn't had the most sparkly start to her reign as number one. Is there any cause for concern there, you think, or how should people? How much should people, if anything, read into her results in this sort of stretch? Yeah, I mean there are
1: some, I think some. She went like three and
0: three or four and three. It wasn't a great record at all,
1: right? I mean there there are some injury issues that that crept up uh, in Beijing, um, but obviously she you know going into Singapore will have had a significant amount of rest um, going into that tournament. But um, you know I don't think honestly like I I don't think there's any shame in losing that match to Petra in Wuhan um no that was an incredibly high level match angie played well enough to win that match and petra just petra and when petra petra is what are you gonna do you're just gonna shrug and you move on um so i don't think that the wuhan i think there's a huge asterisk next to the wuhan laws i think that beijing for sure i, mean, I don't think that angie kerber should be losing in straight sets to alina Svitolina. i think that's that's a bit of a ridiculous result um i think for me i think that angie would probably agree with that um uh, yeah, and then Gavrilova, right in uh, in Hong Kong.
0: Gavrilova trounced her. Yeah, Hong Kong, and I yeah. think
1: that at that point, you know, I mean, those players who have qualified for Singapore have Singapore on their minds, and uh, so it it is what it is. But you know, so long as you know she's healthy, you know she'll 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 obviously have a shot in Singapore. Uh, given everything that we know, I don't think that the court in Singapore necessarily um, helps her. Um, there's something also about that tournament that that's never been particularly great for her. She's never qualified out of the the group stage, um, obviously. As the story goes, and as the legend of Angelique Kerber goes, she was <laughs> a set away from doing it last year and choked, and that just unleashed the beast. Apparently, <laughs> um, yeah. so you know, so you know, Kerber has had an incredible ability this year to surprise whenever you think that she's just like not supposed to be relevant um so in singapore she could absolutely win it she could absolutely not qualify out of group i think that that's how tight the uh the eight players who will be playing singapore kind of are i mean every single one of those matches is going to end up being a toss-up in a lot of ways when you sit down to to write the uh the previews but i'm not i don't know i'm not really panicked about angie going no to i don't I do know there's
0: reason for for panic it just hasn't been i think it's just not it's not what you'd like Consoli- to see. It's not, it's not consolidation. Right. No, for sure. Of, of of getting number one. And we just haven't seen... I mean, it's different than... We'll switch to Serena here because Serena was number one for a long time and especially in the last year or the last... However much, she just we barely saw her play. And so Serena, you know, was taking zero points for not playing whereas Kerber's been taking... Been up and down and had a, a, been alternating good results with not so good results. Um, Serena pulled out of Singapore and didn't play the entire WTH swing for the second straight year um not a, i don't think people were really shocked by the time it finally broke there were some thoughts that she it was it was on the fence whether or not she'd play um and then so she's not playing again is is there reason to be concerned about what this means for serena long term is this smart i mean ranking wise it's not going to help her at all as it already didn't as, as it already had hurt her this year i mean she would have likely held on to number one longer if she had played asia in 2015 right um But yeah, now she she misses it again. Um, What what does it say about where Serena's at in her career, you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of discussion, especially in China, amongst the journalists. You know, everybody kind of speculating, like, you know, will Serena play Singapore? Will she not? My sense was always that, you know, I don't think that Serena plays, obviously, for titles outside of the majors. Um, I think she's made that pretty clear at this point. I don't think she necessarily plays for money. Um, uh, she's got a lot of it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and at this point she's kind of like, uh, whatever. I, I, you know, if it's a, she's not,
0: I, she's not chasing a parent's fee. Exactly. I mean, you don't see her, you don't see her. I mean, with the exception of that one time she played. Uh, I was going to say, I was Bo like, well. <laughs> <laughs> But, but other than that, yeah. But you don't see her doing things like, uh, showing up in Hong Kong where there, right. was, there was clearly a lot of money on offer for players and they had a really good, a really good feel for international level. For sure. Um, yeah. So you don't see her. I mean, she might play IPTL later which is yeah money which grab. is but whatever. but uh, um which is fine yeah but, which is fine uh, we'll
1: see do you um but so so my thought you know back in like the wuhan days when everybody was kind of speculating and we were discussing i was like i don't think she's going to go because she wants to add a t- another title to her belt i don't think she wants to go just because she needs it. she wants a paycheck i think that if the I, my thought at wuhan was that if angie didn't do well enough in the asian swing to make to either clinch number one year and number one or to at least make it really, really difficult for for Serena to 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 recapture it if she were to play Singapore, then I think that, like, you know, I kind of was like, I uh, I don't know if Serena would think that she had motivation to fly all the way over here and play Singapore. Um, so with Angie losing relatively early in Wuhan and Beijing and then in Hong Kong, I was like, well, you know, we were crunching the numbers. I was like, well, I mean, kind of on the fence. I don't know whether or not this is, like, easy for her if it's going to be like a legit battle for year number one or if it's like oh does angie just really need to win two matches in round robin is that all that it takes like you know all these sorts of things um and then she announced that she was out and i think that you know if you follow serena on social media um it was fairly clear that uh that you know she was enjoying her time off um Mm -hmm. and that didn't involve a racket and that's okay um i don't think that it it's an indicator for anything for in terms of, like, ooh, let's be worried about Serena. Just, like, I mean, this sounds a bit weird because this is the flip side of things. Like, for example, with Caroline Wozniacki, she's had a great fall, and she looks like she's going to finish the season with a steaming amount of of uh, momentum and motivation. Mm-hmm. But we've been here before. In 2014, in yeah. In 2014, and it didn't pay off. Uh, the following year, so I I'm definitely kind of a bit I'm I'm really happy for for Caroline that she's playing really well, and that she's back where she should be, which is like back to being a relevant player, a player that wins tournaments, a player that you look for her in the draws um, to see if she can pull off an upset, um, which is great. I've been tempered that I've tempered myself, like I've just been like, eh, I you know let's see kind of how January goes. The flip side with Serena, it's like okay, she's for the second year straight year, shut down her season after a disappointing loss in New York? Does it mean that everything's, like, worrisome? No. In fact, maybe this is exactly what you need to do to continue to play in your mid-30s. Maybe this is standard.
0: Mid late thirties. I mean, she's right. Getting, she's exactly thirty five. Yeah, she's in like uncharted okay, 35 territory. Thirty five is legit per... mid
1: thirties. You don't have to go late thirties.
0: No, I, I know, I know. But she's getting. She, that's exactly mid. I, I agree. But she's moving into late third, mid late thirties as she gets. You know, as she keeps her going. I mean, I I, I just want to I, I just wanted to say that as a compliment to her, just to show that she's really at thirty five, being having had been number one at thirty five or thirty four like when she lost it. When was her birthday? Yeah. Whatever, I think she was 34 when she got number one. She was the oldest number one ever right. by some distance at that point. And so she is having to play to the extent that she's aging at a comparable rate to what everyone else was aging earlier. And I think she's probably not because, the, you know, technology and recovery stuff is so much better than it was in the 80s and stuff um, and just training and everything like that. She, she But now she has to be more cautious. And I, I do think this it does leave her a bit rusty at times. I remember she got defensive at the U.S. Open and she was asked right. about playing back-to-back days, which she had to do in the quarters and 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 semis. And she, and her response was, you know, if I can't do this, this is what we do every week. Like if I can't do this, I don't deserve, you know, to be here, or I, sh- I should find a new career. Because so we do every week. The thing is, though, in 2016, Serena only played one one-week tournament the entire year, Whoa, which was Rome. Rome. Yeah, Rome. that was wow. her that was her only one. Stat. Every other tournament she played with the, the Olympics is I'm not counting cuz it doesn't count her ranking but it was technically one too right but she didn't play back to back days regularly at any tournament so I, I it is a question mark i think fairly for her how much she how uh, how she's aging and how that will continue to affect her recovery and things like that as she goes on um, yeah. like i said i said the same i said the same thing but uh, i think when we were in Scotland after the French Open that i wasn't 100% convinced she'd win any more grand slams at that point and she proved me wrong pretty immediately <laughs> by winning Wimbledon, but I'll still say it too, just out, out of out of you know respect for her and how good she's been and how tough it is to win Grand Slams. I don't think you know we might have seen her last Grand Slam already, and that would be totally fine. Like there is no shame in in ending with twenty two, if yeah, she does. Yeah, it, it is and, kind of a funny and that's, thing. Uh, like... Yeah, and that's something that she could uh, that I think should be in perspective if she you know doesn't win anymore, or has a rough year next year. Still, already the scoreboard is still already incredible.
1: Yeah, it is kind of a funny thing with the with with Serena and kind of like looking at her legacy and her records and her dominance, right? Because winning Grand Slams is really fucking hard, like really hard, really really freaking hard, you guys. So when people kind of nonchalantly are like, "Oh yeah, Serena's dominant," I'm like, "No, you don't understand how dominant she is. Like, for her to do what she has done since coming back, particularly since the pulmonary embolism." And to dominate this tour the way that she has, particularly at the majors, like, do not just say like, oh, she's like the, gr-. like, it's not so, it's not as simple as just like, oh, she's just really good and better than everybody else. I'm like, no. Winning a Grand Slam is more than being better than everybody else. Winning a Grand Slam involves an incredible amount of work, an incredible amount of just guts and grit and being able to handle the pressure. And it also involves a little bit of luck. Mm-hmm. And I think that over the last two years, Luck has flipped the other way on her. I think that that came into that came into play a little bit, you know, whether it be like you know that she was somewhat you know physically compromised at the US Open um, coming you know coming into it and then the draw is that that you get you have to play like the one player that could actually kind of maybe blast you off the court if she has a good serving day in plishkova. Um, and then at the French Open, the way that the weather worked out and having to play back to back to back to back matches. Again, yes, Serena's absolutely right. If you can't play back-to-back matches at the WTA level, like you should find a new career. But let's not forget that that's also a thing that is difficult. We do talk about how, you know, if a player finishes a late match on the WTA tour level and then has to turn yeah. around and have to play like a midday match next day, recovery matters. It <laughs> like we shouldn't dismiss it. It is difficult, and they, lo- and, they
0: lo- and they lose more often than not. And that's the situation right. she got into in Paris. And you're, I think you're right that the luck sort of flipped the other way. I whether it's luck or a bit, a bit of it, just a dip. I mean, I think I yeah, I, like think the, the, I... The, I think it's both. I think the stat that that sort of boggles my mind is that she's made even still since completing the Serena Slam, the second Serena Slam. Um, she's made semis or better at. All five slams, five straight slams since then, but she's only won one of them. Yeah, and that sort of conversion rate is very unSerena and has no sort of precedent in her in her career of not being able to finish when she gets close. And then and- uh, the other thing is with with the luck. I mean, there was luck. I mean, even though Serena Slam looked really dominant on paper, actually watching those matches, there were a lot of really scratchy moments along those those four consecutive slam wins, especially obviously Paris where she right. got. A lot of a lot of really good luck, even draw luck. I think is discounted. I mean, let's remember her final three matches in that tournament were uh, Irani, Baczynski, Safarova, right. which just stacks up as one of the easier last three slam matches on paper that anyone's ever had.
1: And, and the thing even is, still, is that it like, was a struggle. And the thing with that again is that like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's it's mm-hmm. like you know, but these. To win seven matches at the highest level at a Grand Slam, when you know like the stakes are so high, so many of those victories will come down to a handful of points. And even, you know, look at Kerber. Kerber should have lost to Doi at the Australian mm-hmm. Open, and this year looks completely different. If that happens, I think right, like you're probably looking oh, yeah. at a Serena Vika final. Who knows? Maybe Vika wins that, but like it, but it's it's very very different. It has a different tenor to it all. Even when you look at, you know, the uh, Wimbledon, you're talking about even in that final, Serena was in full control completely. But if she drops 10% in that final, Kerber was playing well enough to make that a match. And uh, could have taken, you know, Serena drops just a little bit, could have taken it to three. And then the pressure and everything, who knows what's ha- what happens? You know, uh, Pliskova was match points down at the US Open. Um to Venus, and if Pliskova goes out there, maybe Serena makes the final, and maybe in the final she gets her revenge. I don't know, but like these are all things that we can all sit around and like you know yeah.
0: do shots
1: and like debate. And this is like tennis. The butterfly talk.
0: effect of tennis is pretty great. You can go, you can yeah. What if anything in tennis? But that, but that's kind One of the thing. That's why, do. like,
1: when Serena was going through her like phase of of just pure and utter like ridiculous dominance. I don't know. I always, and I think I've said this on the podcast before. I think I've always, I always just kind of. I think I've always been a little bit annoyed that like people kind of like didn't recognize like how amazing what she was doing. What like everybody wanted to just denigrate the field.
0: And I don't think people gave it enough context for being improbable. I think people were yeah, just sort of ready sure. to be like, look at her being this ultimate, you know, queen, crown her, put her on all the magazine covers. She's always been the greatest, and this is when we're just noticing. And, and there was a lot of odd narrative construction with Serena, which we've discussed. Years, I think, yeah, will be, which will be interesting to look back on once when, when it's all said and done. Just how everything swung so quickly and the sort of coronation that she had, which is earned. And I mean, and and, and in a lot of ways, and you know, her a lot of the respect she was getting was very overdue. That's all true. But this this weird way it all came to be at once, and she became this sort of you know, the, as we say, yeah so the Beyoncefication. Yeah, the enough.
1: superhero. Serena's a superhero. Yeah. It's like no, but she's not. <laughs> like yeah. you know. Or if she's a superhero, she's not like Superwoman, she or Wonder Woman. She's like an X Men, where like their superhero powers are actually kind of their faults as well. Anyways, I'm not gonna go down that route. But um, yeah, no, it, yeah. like what what I always found to be so resonant with serena was the fact that like for her to do what she was doing given kind of the the stress levels that i know that she was feeling given the nerves and anxiety that i knew that she was feeling that the pressure that she felt the expectation knowing that when she wins no one cares but when she loses it's front page news everywhere um to play under that sort of scrutiny for for you know and to to deliver the level that she delivered over, you know, three and a half three, four years, uh, just mind boggling, honestly. Like even yeah. just thinking about the amount of pressure that she was playing under, like, makes me nauseous.
0: I think there's a pretty easy transition here to switch to talking about Novak Djokovic, who is number one still on ATP for now. His ranking has been slipping quite a bit. And he just seems to he's had this odd at least there's been the way he's been talking, I think, has been much darker than his results have actually been, and the way he's being he talked about, certainly too um Djokovic obviously lost third round, wobbled into Sam Querrey. Uh, bears repeating cause it still just blows my mind that that, that happened. <laughs> and uh, then you know lost first round Olympics, but played Del Potro, who is ultimately silver medalist. Made the final of the U.S. Open somehow, and then had a and then pulled out of Beijing, which is normally his like favorite tournament, and uh, and lost in the semis pretty meekly of Shanghai to Batista Agut, which is not the kind of loss we ever associate with Djokovic. Um, and Murray won both Beijing and Shanghai, so he's closing the gap on number one, and there's a chance he can get it even before London if he runs the table. So um, how how alarmed, I guess, in a similar sort of context to Serena, I mean, Novak's obviously a lot younger, he's 29, but that, you know, dominance isn't something taken for granted, and what he was doing, as automatic as it seemed, might have been more precarious than we gave it credit for, you know, yeah, it doesn't take much, it doesn't take much to derail a train going that fast.
1: Yeah, I, I will, you know, after after spending the last fifteen minutes talking about it, nobody appreciating what Serena did and how difficult it was for her to achieve what she achieved, I will raise my hand and say I absolutely um, took for granted uh, what not what Novak did. I definitely recognize that it was amazing, but that but how delicate the situation was. I think that that. You're right in the way that you phrased it, that, that, you know, he was this, you know, steaming, you know, train through the first half of the People thought he was season. a machine, yeah. Yeah, exactly. A machine. It was automatic. Um, you know, he was just better at tennis than everybody else, that the gap between him and everybody else. I mean, he was playing with his, like, C- minus level and winning and making, you know, easily finals of big tournaments. And then, you know, had to ramp it up a little bit to play uh, to play better in the final. But... You know, I I, I I, will definitely say I don't think that going into the French Open and for the first like five, six months of the season, I really understood how or really felt that it was all on a bit of a, a knife's edge. Right. That just a little bit of the wind blowing a different way would completely derail him um which effectively it has. And the fact that, you know, the first to do the derailing with Sam Query might've, uh, signaled the weirdness of the situation, uh, for the next five, four or five months. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would definitely cop to that. I think that I, I definitely thought he was an automatic guy. I thought that he was the, the gulf between him and the rest of the field was far greater than it seems to be. Cause I don't, I mean, I'll ask you: Do you think that his level has dropped that much, that much, from being like this mega dominant, you know, player for the first five and a half months of the season to being kind of, you know, where he is now? Is that a drop in level? I think, it's, or is think that it's a like drop. a like, but like precipitously so, or just like a drop in level enough, and I just underestimated how close the field was actually to him.
0: I mean, I think I would go more with the former. I think that, the, that it's a fairly big drop. And that I think that his C- minus level really used to be, like you said, he won something like that match against Gilles Simon at the Australian Open. And stuff. Uh, I think the, man, the matches he was able to get through playing really, you know, turdish tennis at times was, <laughs> was, was, was remarkable. And, and, and then, and like you said, he would be able to flip the switch and absolutely clobber the top guys when he got there. You know, he brutalized Nadal, Murray, and Federer all in January. Um, when he faced them late in, well, uh, late in the Australian Open for the last two in the Nadal at the Doha final. Um and the mental edge there is just not there. The switch is, is sort of broken. I mean his his match against Batista Goo, which I watched almost all of for some reason, it was so bad. And he was just and he was just confused and just looked easily anguished and all the shirt ripping and everything. He just looks like whatever What's sort of focus shirt ripping he had. About? I really don't like it. I don't know what it is about it that bothers me so much. But just something about it just is so, like, weirdly juvenile or unhinged or, I don't know. It just reminds me of, like, uh, Tracy Jordan taking off his shirt and just sort of this, like, (laughs) act of, like, loss of control. Belly slapping. um, right, but at, but at least but at least that was you know joyful.
1: Yeah, exactly. The weird thing is to me about the shirt ripping is that like I would totally be down with it if it was like the equivalent of a racket smash. Like you know most people ra- smash rackets like on their way back to the bench, you know, on the yeah. change or or they smash their racket and they walk towards their bench. No, way they got I gotta go get a new racket because I just broke this one. But and like, you
0: regroup and stuff, he yeah.
1: kind of like does it and then like continues to play, which seems odd to me. That's what he did at the U.S. Yeah. Open anyway. Like he ripped it. And he's like play, He played a point with it. Like that's weird. Yeah. Like, I it mean, is fine, weird. rip like you need it. Like, but like, you go need change like your more...
0: shirt. And Uniqlo has to hate it. It's not good for the yeah, clothing. Yeah, it's not great. It's, it's like how it racket lo- sponsors. Lo- yeah. Racket
1: sponsors don't like it when you smash their rackets.
0: No, probably not. You know. <laughs> um. So yeah. So it's just been odd. And 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 with Djokovic, obviously, there has been a lot of whispers about you know personal life stuff happening. That's precipitated all this, you know, derailing, and I think that's probably fair. And it goes to again, just sort of how delicate the balance can be. How many things, how many different gears have to be clicking in the right way for everything to be going to make you to make you look like a robot uh, when everything is perfect. And if one sort of gear gets stuck or just sort of you know jarred a bit, it can throw off the whole thing. And it it, and I I assume Jokovic is too good a player not to keep you know even even this bizarre emo shirt rippy Djokovic is still like a cannot possibly leave the top four right even if it's like weird you know lost phase of himself but you i mean you don't know what things happen i mean like with serena or like with uh tiger woods as an example in from another sport like tiger was on top of the world in 2008 when he won u.s mm-hmm. open and then had his own personal life thing of a much bigger scale than anything we think is happening with Djokovic, and um and never won another major again in golf. Yeah. And you know, just think. Think. I'm not. I'm not saying that that's where we're at with Djokovic. I'm just saying that the balance can be thrown quicker than you would think, even from a pretty pretty high perch. Yeah. No. So I, mean, I, I think I think he has I think he has room to recover and time to recover. But it it could it. This is definitely worse than I thought it was going to be. This this tailspin. This this uh weird. Yeah. You know, Uh, lost its seeness of his second half of this year
1: yeah i mean i think that, that that's again as we're talking about like things that people underestimate or whatever but but it sounds really cliche because i know players have been asked about this before but but how they're feeling off the court does affect how they play oh yeah that you know they're not machines that it, that they are human beings and when you are in a particular moment of stress a lot of things are going through your head and um you know you're not always thinking completely straight and i think that you know and i i, I just think about it from you know traveling with the tour kind of thing like there have definitely been those moments where you know i walk into the, the tournaments and i just kind of wander around uh you know, uh, the player areas, chit chatting with some of the players or coaches or whatever. And you'll, you know, like the player will be kind of sitting in the corner, like warming up and, and you'll just have like, I'll have a, a quick conversation with the coach. It's like, yeah, I mean, the traffic was really brutal this morning. Like, you know, she had to wake up at like six in the morning to get here. And, you know, it's just been, I don't know, she's a little cranky, like, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh really? And then like, don't think much of it. And then I watch her match you know, four hours later, and I'm like, "Oh God, yeah, that was really bad." Um, that yeah. you know, like that that just in some players handle it better than others, which is you know, but but they, these are real stressors, and so when you talk about something that's like so fundamental, um, when those problems are not traffic, but something that's like probably a little bit more fundamental. It it impacts things. I mean, we see it with with Mr. Curios and and how he's there. Looking. We go. That
0: was I was I was so ready to make that transition. <laughs> I was going yes. ju- to.
1: I cut you off. I'm
0: sorry. I knew oh, you were. going to no, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you saw the turn and took it yourself. I it's, did. It's, it's like very... rally
1: car racing where one person's the driver, but the other person like reads out the map audibly. Yeah. You know, it's like that. Yeah. But yeah, like well, you so know, Nick, get, yeah. Nick is definitely one of those people as well. And you know, it it it's all I'm going to say is like people, like I will see people react. To player performances, like oh, they're terrible, whatever. And you're just like, and I, a lot of times, I'm just like, oh, you have no idea what was going on with that person for the last 48 hours, or the last 24 yeah. hours, or the last week, or the last month, or the last six months, you know. But
0: there you go. So let's let's, let's talk about Nakirios. I know we've talked. I've been in. why well, was. I kind of stayed on the sidelines of the group conversation that was had yeah, about Nakirios. <laughs> I did. I was like, nope, nope. <laughs> just for that Homer Simpson into the hedge gif. <laughs> For me. Um, <laughs> but the dif- opinions, I would say opinions on Nick Kyrgios are very divided and things sort of, I guess, finally came to a crescendo. Nick uh, won Tokyo ATP. It was the biggest title of his career, 500-level title, his first one of that caliber. Things were going up, up, up for him, apparently. And then he had this, and then his second match, after beating the aforementioned Sam Query in the first round pretty easily, um, he then goes up against Misha Zverev, um, the, the lesser-known but older Zverev, and just plays... Awful and there's this one really signature point of the match that got, you know, gift and vined and highlighted and everything where Nick sort of down breakpoint, I think at like one two or one three in the in the first set, um, just sort of taps the serve a second serve in on breakpoint add Zverev and then just sort of walks to his chair without um without even trying to pretend like he's gonna attempt to play at this point. And it looks worse when somebody doesn't move for a, their own serve, and then when they don't move for a return, you see people sort of not trying to return things, but not trying to play a point on serve is different, and the optics were bad, and he lost in 48 minutes, and ATP, I think a lot of people would say, finally cracked down. And I don't just mean this with curious, but I mean this with like everybody, and this is the first sort of conduct suspension they've handed down, at least in my tennis writing career. Um, I and I think I, th- I think I saw that it goes back to like McEnroe for something completely comparable for a, a conduct suspension. Uh, the ATP fined him what eventually amounted to like forty one thousand dollars, and but more consequently banned him for eight weeks with the option to reduce it to three, which is still through berse. So it still effectively ends the season um, if he uh, seeks help from a sports psychologist or some equivalent. Uh, so I guess. I, I I wrote a column about this for Fox Sports Australia. I think basically, I think the suspension was the right move, just because you have to sort of inte- protect the integrity of the product of ticket buyers. That they you have to assure them they're not going to get something like that when they pay match pay for a match. But otherwise, I I more or less. I, I know Courtney. I'll just throw to you. I know that you're more sympathetic to Nick than a lot of people. And I guess if you can just explain. Why. <laughs> you mean that
1: DM argument didn't uh, didn't give my my hand away. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that the, the suspension is fine. Um, I think yeah. that it's deserved. I think that that's yeah. totally disrespectful to fans in terms of what he yeah. did with respect to, to kind of just, um, really almost kind of weirdly telegraphing the tank. Um, and, 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 and it's not even about the tank to me. It's, it's what he said to the fans. You you can't say that. And, and even, you know, after, after his match at a press conference and just kind of, I don't know, just being a little bit nonchalant about things. So I, I, the ATP suspension, perfectly fine. I think that there's two things that I have a little bit of an issue with. One is just the general kind of visceral reaction to Curios as a whole. Oh, he's terrible. Oh, these comparisons of him and McEnroe – um, comparisons of him and like other bad boys in sports, um, you know, worst name calling that I've seen, um, of him. And I kind of don't really get it to be quite honest, that level of vitriol simply because here's a guy who, okay, sometimes he doesn't want to play. You know, we all have days where we don't want to do our jobs and it's, and we are paid to do our jobs and we wake up and we're like, I really don't want to do it, but you got to go because that is your job. Um, and so you go, and do you put in a full effort? Probably not. You just try to get through the day. You only put in a
0: passable effort, and that's what he failed to do here. Fair
1: enough. No, that, and that's why I'm saying yeah. is that that's right. fine. Yeah. The, the suspension is fine. But, like, this idea of, like, oh, he's a terrible person. He's a jerk. He's an asshole. He's all these sorts of things. I'm like, I don't really get that from him, honestly. Um, so much of what I see when I see Curios is someone who just maybe isn't, you know, emotionally equipped to deal with his circumstances, which are very high-stress, high high-pressure high circumstances. And, yeah, people can sit there and say, well, Roger was amazing. He dealt with this all the time, and Rafa was dealing with this. He was 18 years old, and Novak's a statesman, and Andy's this, or, like, whatever. And it's like, yeah, that's not normal, though. <laughs> like a normal yeah. human being, and, and, and or even a human being who's not normal, who, who already has, you know— uh, you know, issues of their own and baggage of their own, who maybe their fight-or-flight instincts is to flee. Is is that one thing? Mm-hmm. And which is something that he very candidly admitted at the U.S. Open went after his terrible loss to Andy Murray where he barely showed up and he admitted that he played video games that morning.
0: Wimbledon, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah.
1: Wimbledon. It's like, yeah. it's like his reaction to those high-stakes pressure moments is to shut down. And I think that if you actually pay attention to Nick – and actually look past all the antics and actually think about what he's saying and what he does, that that has been a pattern with him. And he needs to deal with that. And he needs to learn how to deal with that. And he needs to learn how to deal with it within the context of being a professional athlete and an elite one. And so he's going to make bad decisions. He's he's young and it's going to happen. But yes, I do have sympathy for him because I think that the expectations that are being, that, are not necessarily being placed on him, but like the lens that people are using to like interpret his actions, I think are very cynical and overly cynical as opposed to being empathetic. And I personally side with the empathetic uh, situation because I'd rather be wrong. I'd rather be empathetic and be wrong than to call somebody out and say that they're like a terrible human being. You should never swing a racket And then realize later on that actually there are issues that are far more deeply rooted within him mentally or emotionally um, than otherwise. And so, yeah. So I definitely feel for him on that end. I think the other thing, too, that I will say about the suspension, I did not like that it was um, tied to um, needing to see a sports psychologist. I think that that is something that – if that's something i do i would i love for nick to see a sports psychologist absolutely do i think every professional athlete should see a sports psychologist absolutely <coughs> this isn't particular to nick um but that sort of paternalistic um, take on his career i think is 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 personally for me uh overstepping uh and then the last thing that i will say on his suspension one thing that i the, the minute that i read his thing the first thing that i thought was Michael Lodra called a fan at India Wells a bunch of terribly, terrible things. He got $2,500 right. fine. So, if you're going to apply a rule and you want to make somebody, you know, you want to actually say, oh, we're concerned about the integrity of the game and we're concerned about how our fans are treated when they come to tournaments and these are ticket paying fans and whatever, be uniform and don't apply that rule simply because somebody lands on magazine covers more than somebody else. I think that's ridiculous. Yeah.
0: We got a question along those lines from Mike Deneen who asks, uh, with this curio suspension, do you think other players who have temper tantrums, named name's Fanini, uh, will get away with as much? And I say temper tantrums being used loo- loosely to mean like any sort of misconduct on court. And that's what I think was interesting about the Curios thing and the ban, is that there wasn't precedent. We've seen lots of awful things happen right. from, ver- from various men's tennis players in particular. Um and even if you want to throw in like Serena with you know the line judge in 9 who've who've gone out with out without, without bans before, we haven't seen this sort of this threshold of penalty get crossed. Um, I mean, like Fanini, he mentions come to my had all sorts of horrible tankish meltdowns that are equally sort of ridiculous and it's thrown in the similar sort of crowd insults and like Lodra, you know, some ethnic slurs have, has been accused of and things like that. And so, yeah, I, I would hope, and I think that the ATP has been compared to other sports leagues about this way too lax when it comes to putting down meaningful punishments for uh, unacceptable behavior. I mean, I don't think the fines in the low five digits are going to affect these guys very much when they're making however many millions of dollars they're making a year. Um, and I think this is the first sort of meaningful ban. And I hope that it sets a precedent that they're going to show more teeth on this in the future. I mean, I would, I think in, in these extreme cases, I think there's not a great case not to, I think it makes you look like a real sport when you, when you have the ability to control your people, you know, even if there are weird, weird, uh, weird sort of ups and downs in tennis, or, you know, like he's going to be able to play if he didn't take the plea deal with the sports psychologist, which I agree with you. I think it's, it's, it's odd. It's, 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 that struck me as like, I don't remember ever seeing that in any other sort of, uh, Send Fanini to a
1: sports psychologist. I mean, holy yeah. cow! I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. it's so absurd to me. Or like, you know, yeah. Tomek has done this stuff before, right? Mm-hmm. With his yeah. like the whole yeah. discussion with Muhammad about the draw, and he had to play like whoever uh, in in right at Sydney earlier this year. Yeah,
0: he was like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be at this tournament, right? And I, mean, well, I had to like count, yeah, like that. Yeah, which Muhammad which shouldn't those, yeah, be those... doing
1: either. Like honestly, no, and the I chair mean, empire a chair umpire should not convince yeah. you. To play better. To
0: try. Right.
1: Yeah. A mature umpire issues a code violation is what an umpire yeah. does or the umpire defaults you for a certain reason. The umpire does not yeah. try to coax you into trying harder and get you it's out of the not a code. life coach. Like that is not – not that's just not how real sports operate. And I think that's a really frustrating no. thing. But I will say this. Like I – to this day, years later, I am personally – Asian, as an Asian American offended by what happened in Indian Wells and the, and not because of like what was done, but what wasn't done w- in terms of the response. And yeah. so I think that that to me absolutely colors kind of yeah. how I see how Curios is being treated here Yeah, with, it just with, doesn't with seem with right. With Lodro. Yeah. It just yeah. doesn't seem right.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's totally, that's totally right. And, and I, I know Indian Wells' reaction to that was, Really good on the side of reaching out to the fan involved. Yes, and, and they like and they got her and her family, you know, tickets for future and apologized. And, and she was happy about it, whatever. like what the tournament Right, and she did. was. we we've, we've yeah, met her a couple years later. Yeah, I Alex the Barlow. And hey, and Alex. Exactly. I think she I think might be a listener. Hello. Um. And yeah, but but what the ATP did in terms of cracking down was non-existent. He sent a T-shirt. And, and even and even and even and even yeah and even um. I guess Indian Wells might – I don't know if they have the power to ban somebody themselves, but they could have possibly. I don't know. That's just the thing. There's just so many moving – it's not like the NBA where they can – or NHL where they can right. just sort of put down a, here's what happened, here's our band, and it's unilateral tennis. There's a lot of – I mean, I started to say this earlier and got cut off but by myself. <laughs> um, but you pulled a Kyrgios, trump on think, yourself? <laughs> yeah. curios could still play Hopman Cup while banned. Yeah. Um, and IPTL. Which is, which is an ITF event. IPTL, yeah. Um, actually, Australian Open, he'd probably play while banned too um ITF, if they yeah. if it was and it, it the ban ends before that but it's an ITF event so yeah and this goes back we mentioned I mentioned with Richard ings on the show last week the optics were bad about you know some people were upset at the optics some people ridiculously I think again about Sherpa playing an exhibition charity event while banned uh by ITF uh so so yeah I mean it's just tennis is messy and I'm glad they didn't hide behind that in making this uh deal with curious which I think they did after his uh Kalkanakis moment um with uh with sort of putting on probation that only affected you know he couldn't have bad behavior at other atp only events so he was free to like rack up all the fines he wanted at slams and then that didn't count against his overall here's
1: here's a question i have for you on the curious thing do you think the fine would have been the same if he did you know the whole tanking thing but never said what he said to the fans
0: i don't think so no I, I i completely agree with you that was like the more unacceptable right part okay. of it. Just, yeah because it was so it was so it was so in your face yeah and it was just so like look at me not trying and why should i even try and that's what he like his statement that he put out that who knows if he had any hand in writing it or not um had very little to, <laughs> like walking back every exact thing he said like the exact opposite instead of saying like i know i'm like responsible to fans where he had said like i don't need to do anything for the fans and right, you know yeah. you do have some obligation to the fans like this is where the money your bank account comes from ultimately it's from these people even if you don't feel like you know you've any direct attachment to them you're an entertainer and you have to to, to put up a viable product yeah. and you step on court and
1: i will say that that nick may have said it and he may have been the only one who said it but like i have definitely interacted with many players both on the wt and atp side who think that as well who, who lack sure. the understanding, in my opinion, that these people and fans, they cut you the check that you get to take home. So you don't actually get to say that. You don't actually get to act better than or say, I don't want to do this or to shrug off interviews, uh, not interviews, um, uh, autographs. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, just show Foster up. Sponsor visits and things right, like and that. Right, and just yeah. show up to a tournament.
0: And collect your prize money. Yeah, because you're. And not, do and it's an interesting. Else. Thing it's with like, the... That makes no sense. So because you're not, you're, yeah. you're not ultimately making money because you're a, a good tennis player, right? You're making money because people want to watch you. Yeah, and there's a huge difference. There's a huge, huge difference. I think we'll see if Nick comes back. Uh, a different sort of mindset. Like again, I, I am with you that I am mostly sympathetic. I I think it's worth exploring why he's having these issues repeatedly and and coming at it from a place of sympathy that said I, and i do think so i think you can think that and think the ban was deserved i think those are compatible
1: absolutely opinions. i mean like you can and, sit there and, and say like see it. a child like do something that's like unacceptable and punish them while also recognizing they're a child they kind of didn't know any better but i need to do what i can to try and make sure they don't do it again but you know there're also those those people who they have to just kind of get to that themselves like in other words punitive yeah action is not going to actually deter them it will only embolden them as opposed yeah. to just you know and i think that this is something that i think andy murray is actually quite good at with with respect to nick is that i think that andy i suspect understands that all of this is problematic but i think that andy also realizes that like yeah but if you come down a hard on this guy that is not going to actually fix the problem which the goal should be to fix the problem and to help this kid not to right. just like yeah. be a big sheriff that gets to like lay down the law and like show off like that's not the goal here and make the goal an example is to help. Out yeah. of them. yeah the goal is to help this kid because this kid you know has one of the five keys to the kingdom right like like he he is part of the
0: future undoubtedly of the atp so they, sh- they should want him to be i mean his upside is bigger than anybody's in terms of i agree what he, and, and, and even even a little bit you know i don't want to say this is good for tenants this moment because it's not but i mean the sort of way that he gets people talking is something that tennis as an entertainment sport, as we mentioned before, you know, can benefit from, I I think there's a, if he can cross the line, sure. And I think it was definitely important in this moment, just for them to establish where the line is. because it's been so rarely something that the ATP has done in these past conduct uh, moments uh, with various players, with again, Finney and Tomek being the two others who come to mind. Uh, So yeah, so it's good to do that. And hopefully they can sort of move on, uh, there and we'll see him in 2017 him and isla apparently probably come back together playing good. backhand, backhand I'm looking
1: forward yeah. to, to isla coming back
0: yeah she's been missed so courtney we were recording this before the uh third presidential debate uh, which is coming up in a few hours i, I doubt you're staying up to watch it because it's gonna be on at like you know 6 a.m in singapore and you're already being quite the trooper by being up as late as you are already what but, time is it um, is it 3,
1: 30? Is it 3 30? Yeah. 30 3 35 yeah i'm supposed a.m here Eh, maybe I'll stay. Yeah, three thirty-five, a- three
0: thirty-five a.m. It's Twelve for you hours, for sort of maybe. A P.M. for me. I know it's easy math. Um, so let's see. So I guess there's two questions we got about this. Um, one short, one long, but I'll read both and we can go with every way with them. Um, uh, Drop shot underscore lob on Twitter asks us: Should we expect players to speak out politically, given that many of them quote don't have a formal education? To quote Serena, and we got this longer question which I like from. Um, uh... uh <laughs> A uh, listener named extremely important, uh, sorry, it's subject line, his email, a uh, listener named Mikhail, who says, uh, I'll just read the whole thing because I think it's great. My name is Mikhail. I'm a liberal, homosexual, classical musician from Moscow, Russia. Tennis lover, NCR podcast loyal listener. Um, and he says, some time ago, I saw Ben's Twitter respond to a question about political views of American players on upcoming elections, which was underwhelmingly eye-opening and a bit unexplainable, at least for me. Ben wrote that in most parts, tennis players are conservative, which I assume applies not only to U.S. players. As an example was mentioned, Coco Vandeweghe, who he says openly supports Trump. That's debatable, but she has more or less said that, uh, I'll add. Um, so I don't really get it. As you probably know, since you've been here, Russia is unfortunately a very monocultural country without any diversity whatsoever. At least official ideology forces people to believe that. Most Russians are pretty sure, for example, that they've never seen a gay person in their lives and that they for sure have never spoken to a person of a different color or even simpler nationality. And in Russia, these statements luckily transform into wrong ones with the help of education, traveling experiences, and wealth. When someone is stuck in the bubble of a closed neighborhood, he is most likely conservative, Putin-supportive, and homophobic. As long as he's traveled a lot and has spoken to different people and experienced diverse cultures there's a pretty good chance you have of communicating with an open-minded person. Uh, Mikhail says for me, tennis players seem very much like the second type and I expect them to naturally evolve into understanding and accepting creatures because of their multicultural presence in the locker room and traveling and all the other reasons I've mentioned. So these two things don't connect in my head. And he asked us to discuss this on the show. Uh, So I guess that's a different sort of topic, we can talk about players, I guess a speaking out on this because it's happened somewhat with, more or less frequency uh, as this election comes closer and closer, and finally, will be over in like three weeks. I'm so excited for it to be over Seriously. that everything doesn't even. I mean, even if it was going to go wrong all along, at least it'll be over. You just get it over.
1: I right. don't know if I'll go that far, but yes. No, but I'm saying, but I'm
0: saying, but I'm saying, if it's going to go wrong, I'd rather have it go wrong in three weeks than in three more months. That's a fair crap. argument.
1: That's a fair argument. Um, so. Well, I think I think I'll take Mikhail's point first um, because I think it's no. it's I absolutely totally. Um, sympathize with that mentality and that perspective and that thought, which is that, like, well, these tennis players are pretty cosmopolitan, actually. They fly, regardless of where they come from, whatever country they come from, they travel all over the world to all these great cities. They're around a very multicultural, very diverse locker room. Um, You know, you would think there would be this free exchange of ideas and understanding and, you know, kind of a little bit almost more, you know, progressive – way to think about the world, uh, because they realize that the, everybody's got different opinions and different, whatever. But here's the thing about tennis, um, is that again, when you're talking about a tennis locker room, right? Like so, so whether it's ATP or WTA, so much of that locker room is about survival. It's about being it's almost like high school its it's it's about being just either you're trying to get accepted if that's the thing that you want to be you want to be popular if that's the thing that you want to be you want to just get through it and not be bullied maybe that's your thing that was my thing um in high school Hmm. so you know but 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 it's about survival and to that end being as lena would say the 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 bird that sticks out um Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily um bring you favor and so you may have political views and, and or or, soci- or just views about society or culture or anything. But if it's deemed even marginally controversial or you feel like you're co- going against the green, you're going to be a bit reticent to actually express it to that room of people. And so it's not that they're not multicultural and understanding. They actually are. And in fact, they've kind of gone this other way, which my experience has been that They kind of just think that everybody's cool and we just don't talk about it it's like family reunion like we don't talk politics we don't talk religion and everybody likes rihanna and taylor swift like that's pretty much where everybody
0: is you know i remember i remember this moment being sort of a disappointing moment for me well not disappointing but sort of just like not like it could have been much more when there was this one time in rome a couple years ago where there were like schedule mix-ups and caroline wozniacki and Anna Ivanovich wound up coming to press at the same exact time. Yeah. And they were asked, like, do you have any questions for each other? And they could have asked, like, all these, like, deep, great questions about what it means to be a pro tennis player and a number one recovering. And they were like, have you been shopping yet in Rome? you are like, yeah, not yet. And, like, that's sort of, like, the level of discourse which they wanted, which was fine and acceptable. But it's like, it's, like, this missed moment. But it shows you that a lot of times in tennis, you know, it can be just easier to keep things fairly superficial.
1: Right. Exactly. So that discussion is just not going to really happen. And, and, you know, in past elections that were far less contentious, and, you know, I think that everyone can agree at this point that in past elections, they involved two candidates who obviously differed tremendously in ideology and policy, but were at the end of the day, like, on the scale relative to what we're seeing right now, like, good people who were trying to make the world a better place, like, you know, good civil servants, like, whatever. There wasn't as much reason to kind of have discussion or to really, like, stake a claim. I think that this election has obviously drawn that line a little bit um, stronger. I think that, you know, you you look at a player like Nicole Gibbs, who's obviously been very, um, very vocal um, on social media. And and to her credit, she's putting her money where her mouth is. I mean, she's, like, after the season's over, she's going to volunteer for the Clinton campaign. Um, And she's really, like, I mean, she spends all of her time, like, reading and really trying to educate herself on things to like, not, you know, feel indoctrinated, but to actually think critically about everything, and, and I, which I respect. And I,
0: think that, and I think that to your previous point, when you mentioned the bird that sticks out, she's the one who came to mind for me for that. I mean, she's the one who is, to, to go to back to the previous question about just, you know, should people speak out about politics uh, or not? She's the one who is putting herself out there in that way, Um the most prominent player doing it and the most like active, you know, proactive player doing it in this way that is, you know, socially, and especially within American tennis circles, as we've established risky or, you know, not always championed or, you know, embraced or, I mean, she's saying things that might, you know, speak really well within the echo chamber of the fairly normally, at least on tennis, Twitter, liberal, you know, circles, but among the tennis establishment in the country, it's, it can be, bolder and more uh counter counterintuitive or, or subversive than it uh than it might seem on the outside so i think that yeah. her speaking out about that is, is pretty pretty big i know that i know like uh a couple a bunch of the got american guys have been on the other side of it with varying degrees of um you know intensity you know uh harrison and tennis sangren and uh John Isner, who by the way, John Isner gets, is one who gets the most crap for it for some reason. Which I don't even um, give even, John Isner crap for but, it. He's no, actually not at intelligent all. Intelligent mean,
1: in terms of the way that he sees his yeah. like conservative. Like, I would absolutely have a conversation with John Isner, and it would be an educated, ha- smart conversation.
0: And I have had a conversation with John Isner about yeah. this um, in in this past year, and he's everyone's like, "Well, Tr- Isner is a Trump supporter." I'm like, well, first of all, he's not. He's not actually. And 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 so you can still be coming from a place of had a conservative background. and I mean, I I don't... Well,
1: he's a true conservative because he's not a Trump guy. And I don't think that it's necessarily a coincidence that both John Isner and Nicole Gibbs are college-educated Americans. Right. They can look about this stuff intelligently and critically and not feel like they're being emotional. Like, you know what I mean? Like, whereas I think that a lot of some of the other reactions to the political campaign and the ideology is, is very emotional. And I will say this as well, in talking to a few where I've tried to kind of figure out, like, why exactly is tennis so conservative? These are rich people.
0: Rich white people, mostly. These are rich white
1: people. And for the most part, they like their taxes low. They, they, They want their money. And they are going to be, as is the conservative Republican demographic, probably a little bit wealthier. And so I think that that does drive it. That being said, I think that there's a very hard line between that and... Being a minority, because the minority play the players who are p- players of color that I've talked to about it, they've definitely not necessarily towed the tennis party line on. And it's on
0: interesting, that. and there's a, there's a spectrum. I mean, obviously, there was just an a great column by Juliet McCurr in the New York Times about uh, Martina Navratilova being yeah. like an enduring uh political outspoken person into her and she just turned sixty, I believe. Yes, yes, um, and, and just uh happy birthday Martina. And and just yeah, how she's never lost that fight. And obviously Billie Jean King is a uh progressive icon and has been forever and ever. Um so there's there's a range in, in tennis. And I think I think people are maybe surprised that it isn't more that but really just general in general pro athletes in the US, especially White ones, probably. Um, I have been politically, but certainly in baseball, I know they are. Yeah. Um. And golf, golf, absolutely for sure. Um. And so, it's and pure so, demographics. yeah. Demographics.
1: I mean, tennis players yeah. fall into the conservative Republican demographic more than they're going to fall into the liberal Democratic demographic. That's just
0: and, I, and I, how it is. And I think I think that in tennis also, I think there's a sort of sense among the players that they, um, from a from a more conservative side, that they've sort of earned their way in this meritocracy based career, right. Which is fair, and so and so they're not sympathetic to people who like are want not handouts, sympathetic. right? Yeah, who who yeah, who welfare, they like, Obamacare. Yeah, exactly. Like,
1: I mean, that, yeah. you know, speaking very explicitly. So, like, trust me, I understand the Republican point of view. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, so that's where they're coming from. My frustration at times has always been, and you know, like even for me, Ben has commented this to me like um, a few months ago. He's like, I've never seen you so politically active, like active and, like, lit about politics before. And I was like, yeah, because, like, in the past, like, I'll be honest, I really didn't think it was going to really sway things one way or the other if it was, like, the Republican nominee won or the Democratic nominee won. Yes, there were, like, massive political differences, and, you know, I would vote accordingly, but one candidate was not going to burn this country to the ground and, you know, create and instigate World War Three. And this time that is that is the situation that in my opinion we are faced with so you know what yeah I am going to tweet about that because that is going to be like what's on my mind and I get that like people are like stick to tennis which I find to be completely hilarious because nobody likes my tennis views anyway but (laughs) I'm like I'm like no I'm not going to stick to tennis like this is this is I'm not I'm going to do everything within my power to to make sure a certain result is not going to happen and if that means like completely exploiting my own private twitter account to do it then i will do that as well but but i think that that's like i you know with the players i know like with with gibbs like she goes through that as well where you know she's tweeting a certain way and obviously her her allegiances um, have become clear within with this election um, but uh you know the amount of crap that she gets for it of people who are just like just play tennis and the amount of blowback that she gets from it another player is going to look at that and be like, well, that's not worth it. So why should I be vocal? I I have to deal enough with betters being pissed at me and calling me names. Now I got to, you know, deal with, 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 you know, whether it's, you know, super, you know, whether it's progressive fans who are, you know, calling out Coco and like, you know, all these other, you know, uh, red state, well, Coco's not red state, but uh, you know, uh, Republican conservative players and calling them idiots, or it's the flip side of, you know, Republicans calling, you know, Nicole a bunch of different names. Yeah. Does, is it worth it? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, them. it's a tough question. And it's been an issue for athletes in sports for a long time. I mean, obviously there's a very famous line um, from Michael Jordan um, when he was asked, you know, yeah. about politics early in his career, and he said, Republicans buy sneakers too. Yep. You know, just in that, in that sort of for him, it was not worth it to compromise his uh, – earnings potential and uh and we've seen that too with athletes it's been more in in nba nba i think has been a leader among the four leagues in uh social activism and stepping up and things like that and there was a lot of uh and a lot of especially a lot of them have been activated lately by black lives matter type stuff and so we'll see if see if there's a sort of and lebron came out and explicitly endorsed uh hillary which people think could have some motivating effect being from ohio which is a swing state, mm, yeah. Uh, so, so we'll see. I mean, if it's a trend and if it if it happens, I mean, I'm all for players generally speaking out. Always, as a writer, I want people to just share their truth. Um, always, if it's even, <laughs> I mean, it's not always good for self preservation for them. There are sometimes when they should stop, but I, I just in general, I'm all for people putting ideas out there and, and saying what they have to say. If they feel if they feel like they have a, a strong feeling about something, go for it whether you have a formal education or not. And obviously I'm pro education. Please do try to become educated on the topics as you talk about them, as you learn about them, as you, you know, hear things and exchange ideas on social media. I mean, obviously it's, it's a tough thing and people exist in social media echo echo chambers where they don't allow in dissenting, you know, views and follow accounts that they know are going to be on their side more or less. Um, So it's not always perfect, but in general to go to the original question yeah I'm, I'm i think more political discussion among athletes publicly is overall a good thing
1: yeah and I, and i will say that like you know in that broad that broader question of like should athletes talk politics like that's not you know like should you know and i'm just like you know what if you have a platform i will respect you so much more if you actually use it for things other than just making money yeah. No. So, like, then, you know, not. So, like, I I don't know. I'm kind of definitely of the, like, if you have a platform, use it for good. As one of Hillary's slogans is, do the most good. Simple as that. Like, if you have the platform, try and do good by it. And even if that means, like, you do something that's, like, okay, politically I disagree with, but I would still respect that. Because you're, like, trying to, like, you know, do something to uh, to change the world to be the way that you want it to be. Um. As opposed to like, I only use my platform just to like make sure that I don't piss anybody off because that will maximize my ability to be to 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 sign sponsorships. Ugh, gross. But that's me. That's <laughs> and, just me personally. Like I, you know, I think that's pretty consistent with my personality.
0: <laughs> and with that, uh, gross ending, I think we can wrap up this part of the show. Thank you guys very much for listening to episode one sixty eight. No challenge remaining. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash NCR podcast. Uh, follow, follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. And you can also send us emails, questions. So we do more questions as the we fall rolls along, including we'll send out more messages about this, but we have a lot of Kickstarter uh, rewards that come in the form of questions and segments on the show, which we will be getting to um, in more earnest as the fall off-season come around so think if you're one of those people who is a kickstarter backer get thinking about what you want if that was your reward something along those lines um and subscribe to us on itunes uh, and other services and leave us reviews there we appreciate those executive producers of no challenges remaining are pancho resendez of tennisballs.com and Tal woolly you have any built-up asian rants courtney i can do i have a quick one go for do. it so i i flew back um i was in korea for a reporting trip which for tennis, which will be uh, coming out hopefully in the next couple of weeks and will be cool. And hopefully you all will like it, um, whatever it comes out of it. Hopefully I can do it justice. And then um, I flew back via uh, Beijing. I had a 22-hour layover in China, which was great. And then I flew Air China home. Mm. And the um, most ridiculous thing about it to me, I know I'd heard before about the um, about them like not having issues with some like battery charger things. Uh, in carry-on luggage or whatever, yes. lithium—they're paranoid about it—and so I like put all of them in my my backpack. And like weirdly, like one the biggest one like got through, with the smallest, like the tiny little solar powered US Open one. And I don't know if you remember that what? one. What? That was like the that one they confiscated, even though it's like could not like light a, you know, Christmas tree light. It's so weak. It's amazing. Um, but so so they let one go, and I, I think they just missed the other one, which I'm lucky about. Um, But then on the plane, I was sitting there on this like 15 hour flight with my with the movie selection being terrible and like my monitor even going like on and off working. Um and so I was just sitting there like on my phone, just like in airplane mode playing twenty forty eight, just a little number tile game, just mindlessly, whatever. And the person came over and was like, You can't use your phone. Oh. It's like it's in it's an airplane mode. And I was like, no, even in airplane mode, it can interfere with our, you know, planes, you know, equipment. And I was like, this used to be a thing in the US where you weren't able to use your phone like, any electronic devices during takeoff and landing, which was always nonsense. Right. This idea that, like, that like your Game Boy is going to bring down this plane is ridiculous and so paranoid. And so, like, without any scientific basis. When they got rid of it, it was a huge victory for science and reason. And I, there was such paranoia about it before. I remember when the iPhones first came out, like, in 08 or so. I was on a flight that was landing. And this woman behind me was, like, genuinely panicked because she had just gotten a new iPhone and couldn't figure out how to turn it off. And was like worried that she was going to bring down the plane and kill everyone on board and so they made like an announcement like, does anyone know how to turn off this iphone please like save us all this iphone needs to be turned off for us to land the plane safely and it's like this was never based on science and the fact that air china is like still combating it and during flight and airplane mode airplane mode means freaking airplane like what am i gonna do to this plane with my 2048 game on my airplane mode even if it was on like you know not airplane mode and i was trying to send text messages from the arctic circle which wouldn't have worked but even if i was transmitting something the plane will be fine it's all just the paranoia and the lack of like basis for that bugged me and so i just sat there and like stared at nothing for a while although you see the northern lights from the plane which was cool oh that's cool yeah so that was fun so positive you know silver lining or green lining on the end of my rant
1: there's a lot going on there my friend
0: i know How about you? How's how's, Asia treating you so far? Or do you have other rant topics?
1: Hmm. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Oh, one more rant. I saw... I I, I, know we've both seen Stranger Things. I'd recommend that if you haven't.
1: Oh, my God. So good,
0: right? We're so good. So So good. good.
1: So my rave is going to be very specific and very random. But I genuinely and truly believe it. And it really, really, like, makes me happy and it matters to me. But Changi Airport, which is the... Singapore airport is like mm-hmm. amazing and obviously I'm not telling anybody anything new it very regularly wins like best airport in the world um but like so I landed tonight um from Tokyo uh, around 11 30 I think I landed now first of all it's 11 30 p.m and normally at airports and I go to a lot of airports obviously if you get to an airport after 11 p.m it's pretty much shut down completely right like there's yeah. nowhere to eat there's nothing to do there's just it's dead I land here and i'm like walking around and i get off of like an international flight so i'm in the international terminal and this is like again way before that i've even hit customs and immigration and picked up my bag my luggage but i'm like walking it's totally bustling people are around all the shops are still open all the restaurants are still open it's beautiful there's like nature inside of changi airport which is like a super weird thing they have a butterfly garden that has rare butterflies that you can go out and look at butterflies. Oh, that's cool. In. Um, anyways, Changi Airport's great, and so it like tonight. So I was like walking, and maybe I was in a little bit of a daze. I don't know because I fell asleep on the plane. Oh, I'll rave about that in a second. But anyways, and I was like <laughs> going, I was going, and then like I literally was like looking at all these like shops and kind of just wandering like in the general direction of arrivals. And it got to the point where I, like, suddenly looked up and I was like, I don't see signs for arrivals anymore. And I had to, like, stop at the information desk. And they're like, oh, my gosh. Like, yeah, you walked past it completely, like, about, like, you know, 100 yards ago. And I was like, see, this airport is so lovely and so pleasant that after a seven-hour flight at midnight, I was, like, walking around it like it was, like, a mall. I don't know. It was weird. Like, I didn't even want to leave. I was like, oh, That's just so
0: interesting because normally – and I had this in in Beijing when I was transferring – and what I'm losing my jacket there. Oof. Um, I just or I left it on the plane from Seoul to Beijing and I couldn't get back to the plane, um, once I realized it. Um, is that normally you're like in this like gauntlet. I'm amazed right. that like you can get to you can get to a restaurant before customs. I know. That's normally not how it works. That's normally yeah. not how
1: it works. Normally you're like basically in like a tube that like yeah. takes you from the plane directly to immigration, pick up your baggage, and once you clear everything, then you're in the arrivals terminal. There's no in between, I think the only one that I can think of is, like, at Heathrow, there's a du- there's a last-minute duty-free shop before you hit immigration or passport control, mm-hmm. where you can, like, buy your last-minute goods before you, like, leave or something. But otherwise, like, yeah. So I was just, like, wandering around. and I don't even know what I was doing, but it was perfectly pleasant. The other thing that I will rave about, okay. So I get onto this plane. It's a Delta flight from Tokyo Narita Airport to Singapore. And I have an aisle seat on the outside row. Right, like you know, so I'm going there and I get there and there's. What do you mean
0: outside? What is outside? Like you know, like
1: uh, like an aisle seat, not in the middle seat section. Oh, not in the middle. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah, But on the outer seats, so Mm -hmm. I get to my seat and there's a woman sitting there, and I'm like, Hi, I'm in 31B. She's like, You're in 31B. I was like, Yeah, and and there's another like young girl sitting across the aisle from her. She's like, Would you be okay with switching seats with her on the middle aisle, like the middle section seats? Mm-hmm. And okay, first of all, I just think it's really dick to ask people to do this. And and this is the reason why. Like you're putting me in a situation where I have to be a dick. Yeah. And I don't think that's and cool. So, and,
0: like I think and I think this I think this has become more of a clear thing in this era in which people like can pay money for specific seats on planes and there's different prices and there's sort of clear uh uh admission or understanding from the airline industry and from airline passengers right. that different seats have different values
1: right completely yeah. and i picked that seat i picked it yeah. with my seat picker anyways but like i'm not going to be a wiener about it so i'm like okay yeah that's fine <laughs> and i was like i definitely
0: <laughs> I love that word choice so much
1: i think wiener is a really funny word <laughs>
0: It's a really funny word. Well, I just wasn't expecting it. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, no
1: one expects a wiener, but
0: <laughs> oh, but right. yeah.
1: So like, so I wasn't going to be mean about it, like, and be like, no, I want to sit there. So I was just like, yeah, okay. But I was like, definitely with my body language, pretty much proving that like I'm a little pissed off right now. So I put my stuff into the overhead bin. I sit down, whatever, in this like middle section of three seats. Doors close. No one sits in the row. I have three Ah. seats to myself.
0: Amazing. So the whole
1: time, I'm looking out of the corner of my eye at this this girl and her mom, and I'm like, don't you fucking dare. Like, do not dare ask me to switch again. Like, because now all of a sudden you realize that, like, the switch worked out. So they didn't, thankfully, but they did keep looking over. But I think that my body language and my general, like – You know me. Like, when I want to – I have amazing resting bitch face.
0: Oh, you're scary. Yeah, I can
1: look really scary. So, like, I was just like, heck no. (laughs) Like, I had, like, my baseball cap on. I had my hood up. I was like, no. I I plugged in all my stuff. I spread out all my stuff across all three seats. I'm like, no, you're not asking me to move because if you do, I got to pack up all this. I'm daring you to do it again. So,
0: anyways. Yeah, and you you shouldn't move. I mean, but, like, that's the best thing on flights is when you get an empty row. Oh, my God. I had that um, on a flight from – Somewhere It was a Singapore flight, too. It was, like, Singapore, like, from Amsterdam or Paris or something. I went to Singapore the one time in 2014, and it was amazing. It's, like, the best. And they've said this on customer satisfaction surveys, like, on general air air flights. The biggest factor in enjoying a flight is having an empty seat next to you. Absolutely. And it's, like, what matters the most, more than being, like, anything.
1: And the funny thing is, this flight, okay, so it was a seven-hour flight. So that's pretty good. You know, like, I, like, watched a couple of episodes of Mr. Robot. I ate my food, and then I... You know, completely laid down. I'm not tall, so three seats like works for me. Like I can literally like lie down flat, and I'm pretty okay. Not you know, but the funny thing is that the flight I had a flight from Dallas to Shanghai on my way to Asia a few weeks ago, and I got there. I had again the aisle seat on the outside row, um, and this was a three seat outside row, a big plane, mm-hmm. and I had the aisle doors closed. No one sits there, and I'm like, "Oh my god!" From Dallas to Shanghai, three seats.
0: Like, that's so nice.
1: That's amazing. That's like, you know, it's 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 like a what? Th- Twelve, thirteen hour flight or something like that.
0: There's there's always such game theory for me involved in picking a but, seat but, on but, the but, but, trying but, to figure but, out but, what won't be there. But yeah, go ahead.
1: doors close. Seat in, row in front of me has three people. Stewardess tells one of them, "Oh, you can go sit over there behind you, like in the 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 window seat." Which is mm. the window seat of my aisle. And I like look at her. And she looks at me. She's like, That's co- that, it's cool if she sits there, right? And I was like, Again, why are you making me be a dick? I'm not gonna say no. But like stop. This
0: one you this, this one you have less this one you have less entitlement to, I feel like. I know, because, those because aren't your seats. Those aren't my seats. I don't have
1: any control over them. But I was just like, But yeah. don't like, you know, come on, dude. Yeah. Be Seriously. Be a pal. <laughs> why are you doing this yeah, to me? No, I get that. But yeah. I get that. So anyways. I get that. Now. All this to say, well, I've probably said all this, which means that my flight back from Singapore to SFO is going to be like the middle seat of like the middle section. <laughs> and it's going to be packed. A seat yet? Um, did I You should pick seats. I think I you did. I think I did. I have a Japan Airlines flight home, but it's oh, which fun. should be fine. But oh, and ANA, if you can ever fly ANA, take ANA. Best airline, so good. It's the Japanese, yeah. not National airline, which is like Japanese, which is JAL, but air all air nippon or all nippon air yeah Mm -hmm. um so good oh my god so good them and singapore airlines the two the two best airlines
0: with that we should wrap this up enjoy flying with us and we will um be back i guess i don't know if we can yeah we'll 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 do a show sometime it's hard when we're on like opposite sides of the world and courtney's up at 4 a.m being a trooper But we'll hopefully do some other stuff soon and other content as well. Uh, And see our results show is coming along. It has like 100 tracks on the episode. I need to consolidate that. It's going slow because there's a lot of of quality content. But uh, it'll be to you soon. And as well, everything else. Bye, guys. (laughs)
1: Bye-bye.